0: A business trying to compete without software is like a city trying to run without electricity. That's my paraphrase of a quote from Naval Ravikant, one of the most prolific entrepreneurs and investors of the 21st century. It's also my way of kicking off this episode of the Wealth Tech Today podcast. I'm your host, Craig Eskowitz, and this is our first episode of 2022. Thanks for joining me here. This is our January news review where I dive into a few of the top stories in the wealth and asset management spaces. Today, I'll be covering the following stories. Pershing's ex-business unit makes its first acquisition. FNZ, Wealth Management Platform, seeks to raise a billion dollars for expansion. Number three, RoboAdvisor Wealthfront is pursuing a potential sale at a billion and a half dollar valuation. Number four, uh, we're seeing a surge of compliance tools being acquired in the industry. And number five, as we've been doing for a while, we're gonna wrap up uh, with a bunch of crypto news, crypto wealth related news for you. So those are our five stories for today. Um, So before we jump into the first story, let me talk to you about Ezra Group Consulting. 2022 is our 17th year in business at Ezra Group. And we've worked with hundreds of FinTech vendors, enterprise wealth management firms, asset management firms and PE firms to guide them towards making better business and technology decisions. If you are the CEO, CTO, COO or other fintech executive with a software product that you're selling to broker dealers, RIAs, asset managers or others, run, don't walk to our website EzraGroupLLC.com, and click the button to schedule a discovery session. Our wealth tech researchers can deliver a wide range of market insights for your firm, including competitive analysis, product strategy, market estimates, sales targeting, insights on buying decisions, and more. Every vendor needs this data to be successful, especially when entering new markets. And you can get on the right track by going to EzraGroupLLC.com. All right, a couple of quick housekeeping tasks before I forget. A quick shout out to our sponsor, the Invest in Others Foundation. Go to investinothers.org. Be sure to subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss future episodes. Now let's get this episode started. So first story is Persian X business unit makes its first acquisition in direct indexing. So what is Pershing X? Uh, BNY Mellon's Pershing unit launched a new business unit last October, which they called Pershing X. The goal, according to Pershing CEO Jim Crowley, was to deliver the industry's leading end-to-end advisory platform. So this is a continuation of what they started uh, last spring, according to Crowley, when they realigned their business under two main segments, what they're calling wealth solutions and institutional solutions. So the Wealth Solutions Group is their RIA broker-dealer and bank channel business, which they merged, they used to have Pershing Advisor Solutions, which was their RIA business. So they merged the RIA and the broker-dealer business under Wealth Solutions. So Pershing X will be operated alongside uh, the Wealth Solutions Group. So they also see it as an opportunity, according to Crowley, uh, to serve clients who may not actually use a custodian, uh, where they may not use Pershing as a custodian, or they may be multi-custodial. So that's a big ask for any custodian to support other custodians on their platform. What's interesting is about that decision, assuming they they follow through with that, is I've done some consulting for Pershing uh, Senior Management for a couple of years from 2008 to 2011, specifically on their their wealth platform. And one of the things that we were recommending was that they go multi-custodial. Uh, They technically were a multi-custodial at the time, but only for one client, which was RBC, uh, because they were uh, in Canada, so they had to support that. But they wouldn't do it for anyone else, and every time we suggested it, we got shot down. So 10 years after, they're seeing that as something, an opportunity to grow, an opportunity to to gain more market share, at least on the tech side. Uh, It's really unusual for any custodian to want to be multi-custodial because it's really not in their best interests you know, the, the, the cash cow that is any custodial platform is tremendous. And the, the, the money that's generated from that business provides uh, lots of free services to advisors, whether it's a free tech platform or a free um, practice management or other things. So um, there is there's no, the money they make off the custodial, uh, custodial services are far outweighs any money they could make on the, on the tech platform. Especially as prices keep getting driven down and competition is fierce in, in the space. I, mean, I wrote an article last year, which you can find on uh, uh, called 50 Portfolio Management Systems Can't All Survive. The reason I wrote that was because of the proliferation of portfolio management software in the industry. If you check out the Keats' Advisor Tech Map, which I, Michael and I collaborate on, uh, the new one is just out, I believe uh, yesterday just came out. You can see there's a lot of options in the right in the left side of the map. Portfolio management, rebalancing only, all in one, and custodial platforms. There's a lot. So there's, there's a lot to choose from. There's a lot of choices for advisors and, and broker dealers when it comes to portfolio management solutions. Very difficult to differentiate yourself, especially if you're a custodian. So they've got a, a large hill to push their rock up at Pershing. Now, the 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 news that just came out was their first acquisition of Pershing X, which uh, is being run by Ainsley Simmons, who became president uh, of last October. Their first acquisition was Optimal Asset Management, which is one of the last direct indexing firms still available after all the other acquisitions. And you can go look those up and see. So um, interesting acquisition, why they would go for that. Uh, It seems like they were the last one standing, although they do have uh, over a billion dollars in AUM. So they were getting some traction. Uh, You could say better late than never, or you might say, well, why would you want the last firm that no one else wanted to buy? Uh, There's no way to know there. We'll see what they do with it uh, and where it comes from. But every custodian is going to need this type of solution. They're going to need these types of options, uh, especially on the small account side when it comes to direct indexing. It's great for smaller accounts to really get into that market. A lot of uh, firms talk about the ESG potential. I see that as a lesser reason for direct indexing. It's way better when it comes to taxes and way better when it comes to uh, offering better solutions to uh, smaller accounts, but still they're doing it. Um, but looking at overall at Pershing PershingX, uh, you know, I, I hope they they do well and you know, custodians need to refresh their platform every so often. So this could just be that, that they're, you know, I remember when they announced NetX, it used to be, um, you know, uh, they used to have a, a couple of different platforms that they merged into NetX and that was around 2010. So Looks like every ten years they're they're coming out with a new name and refreshing, which is fine. You've got to keep doing it. You, you've got to uh, adjust to the market. This also could be uh, feeling pressure from LPL. Now LPL has really grown tremendously over the past five years in terms of assets and in terms of number of advisors. Uh, you know, as a broker dealer and a custodian, they've also got their own platform, which is based on a couple of underlying technologies, but they've built a lot around it. And it's an end-to-end, uh, end-to-end system. Uh, it works really well. Uh, you know, they've on the third iteration of client works, which is what their product is called. Their application is called. Uh, advisors are really liking this the, this 3 version, and their assets are growing. You know, Pershing's at two trillion, which makes them, by default, the number three RIA uh, custodian. But LPL is is not far behind. They did they just crossed a trillion, which is a hundred percent increase, of doubling since 2016. So. This move to Pershing X, this rebranding of Pershing X could be a response to uh, LPL, you know, growing and, and stealing some clients from them. We won't know, but overall, uh, in the end, it's going to be good for advisors. It's going to be good for broker-dealers to have more choices, and I think it's good for uh, Pershing as custodian to look to give more options to their clients and, and not lock them in. Uh, we'll, we will see how it plays out. Next up in our January news review. Wealth management platform FNZ seeks to raise a billion dollars for expansion. So, who is FNZ and what are they looking to raise a billion dollars for? So, FNZ was founded in New Zealand in 2003 and uh, as a in, you know uh, for serving investment banks and wealth managers with a technology platform. They expanded from New Zealand to the UK in 2005 and then their growth accelerated from there, and they partnered with, uh, they got a buyout from a PE firm in 2009, more invested in 2012, and now the company is over 1,400 employees in the UK, Czech Republic, Shanghai, Singapore, Australia, and New Zealand. One thing I like about FNZ is 400 of those employees are shareholders, and they will continue to own about a third of the equity in the company, at least following the 2018 transaction. Not sure if that equity is gonna stay if they do this billion dollar raise, but it's nice to see employees as shareholders. FNZ also was a beneficiary of the UK, uh, putting out a lot of regulations. So their reg, uh, reg tech business really uh, thrived and helped them uh, get the foot in the door with a lot of companies and, and build out their platform. We're gonna talk about regulations and reg tech in a later story today. Recently, FNZ made an acquisition of a U.S. based company uh, or a Swiss based company called Appway, which uh, was a is basically a new account kind of opening workflow uh, system, and they, uh, are, as I said, Swiss based, but they launched a U.S. push, I think 2016, 2017, and they've built out um, some U.S. clients. I know LPL Financial uh, uses Appway, and a couple of Canadian broker dealers as well, uh, but but again, not not a lot of. Uh, of uh, landscape in the U.S. for AppWay yet, but they're getting there. I know that some vendors have partnered with AppWay. Uh, Tegra 118, formerly Fiserv, now at InvestCloud. They have a, um, an AppWay license uh, as a strategic partner and embedded it to their Advantage fee billing product. And Refinitiv, on their beta self clearing platform, also partnered with AppWay for new account opening and workflow. So some of the, so those are some of the good things uh, for Appway. Some of the, the negatives, what we have seen from some of our clients, and we've worked with um, uh, some clients who use Appway, was the uh, complaints are too, there's too much custom code required, and lots of one-off implementations uh, for clients. So that's you see that a lot with uh, enterprise uh, wealth tech firms we work with. They wind up uh, having to make a lot of promises to close some deals. Which requires custom code, and if they don't do it right, they wind up with a lot of uh, uh, fragmented code base, which is difficult to support. In, in our opinion, other firms such as Appian, Pega, Finergo, IFS all have really good tech um, and a little bit more flexible, a little bit deep, deeper pockets. Although now with FMZ as their partner, uh, as their owner, their their pockets got a little deeper. Uh, I know firms like Appian counts the US military as a client, as well as First Republic Bank and RBC. So definitely some competition there uh, for FNZ's new acquisition in AppWay. Let's talk about this expansion. So FNZ's infrastructure is used by more than 150 banks, asset managers and life insurers globally. So the majority are outside the US. They really don't have a lot of presence in the US and they have about 1.5 trillion in assets under advisement on their platform. They plan to use this billion dollars. That's not a billion dollars in valuation, but a billion dollars in new funding uh, to grow the business and support future acquisitions. That's interesting that they would leak this now. Obviously they had to leak it, I imagine. Um, we not sure what they're looking to accomplish there, but maybe they want to drum up some more business, get some, get some more firms interested in bidding on this, this funding. Uh, they have a couple of competitors um, globally, firms like Temenos and Avalok, you know, we've worked with, um, so we work with companies in the UK and in Singapore that compete uh, with FNZ and that run on FNZ and well, FNZ has a decent reputation, uh, especially in the UK and with a lot of firms. They've had some problems as, as many uh, legacy vendors have had, uh, especially in their, the, the firm we work with, we work with in Singapore. A big life insurance company had problems replatforming, cost them a significant amount, and actually um, hurt them when they sold their business. They had to sell for significantly less because of the technology problems. Uh, But that's a problem we see with a lot of uh, older companies that have success. They become a victim of their success. They wind up with a legacy tech stack and it's very difficult to configure. It's very difficult to customize rather uh, and and difficult to expand. Uh, So that billion dollars could come in handy uh, if they could use that to replatform themselves, uh, put some new uh, technology into their infrastructure, make things a little easier, build more APIs, and then even buy up some um, some U.S. wealth tech firms. you know, It would be one of the biggest raises in our industry. has ever seen a billion-dollar raise of new funds. It will put a lot of the U.S. wealth tech vendors into play. So I wonder, who would they target next to try to build out the next InvestNet killer? And our third story is about robo-advisor Wealthfront pursuing a potential sale, looking for a one and a half billion dollar price. Is that a bridge too far? Brooks Southall from RIA Biz writes. So what is Wealthfront? We all know they are a robo-advisor, one of the early robo-advisors. Uh, they've raised about $200 million in venture funding with the latest raise coming in 2018 at 75 million with a valuation of around 500 million. Uh, they've been pivoting a lot, which is not a bad thing. I mean, I see some articles, um, you know, kind of dumping on Wealthfront for pivoting, and that's what you have to do. I mean, If you don't pivot, you don't keep changing. Uh, when you see what works, what doesn't work, uh, you're gonna be out of business soon. You know, very few firms make the right decision, build exactly the right product at the right time. It's very, very few and far between. So most firms have had to pivot at one time or another, but they are pivoting quite a bit. So most recently, they moved away from their pure robo-advice platform to being more self-directed. So more like M1 Finance or the the big fish in the pond is Robinhood, you know, the multi-billion dollar uh, company. So um, Wealthfront is reporting around $28 billion in assets and 240 staff. Their direct competitor, Betterment, it reports $32 billion and 375 staff. And when they first came out, there was a lot of talk about will robo-advisors replace human advisors? Well, that clearly is not true. That's not going to happen. Have they changed how humans deliver advice? Yes. It definitely um, modified things specific, uh, specifically around uh, electronic account opening, You know, paperless account opening. That wasn't really a thing 10 years ago. And the robo-advisors pushed that. And now it's pretty much table stakes to have a a completely paperless account opening process. In the independent RIA channel, there's about 3 trillion in assets across 15,000 RIAs and hybrid uh, RIAs that are affiliates of broker-dealers, about 2.2 trillion across 915 firms. The robo-advisors really haven't even made a dent. If you look at the top 10 robo-advisors which have 90% of the assets, it's barely 400 billion. Compare that to the 5 trillion in the RIA space yeah, it's a very small percentage, not even 10%. Uh, I think this. Um, there's been a lot of writing about Wealthfront and other firms. I've written about them. For example, in 2016, I wrote an article called Dead Robo Walking, Why Wealthfront is Doomed. Now that was a little premature. They certainly didn't uh, go bankrupt. At the time in February, 2016, when I wrote that article, they were just under 3 billion AUM. So they've almost 10 xed it, right? Um, actually, I have 2.8 billion, so there are 20. That's exactly 10x. So I think most firms would be very happy with a 10x increase in assets. The question is, is that enough for them? With 200 million in venture capital money to pay back and only 25 basis points in fees, it's going to be hard for them to make money. It's it's, it's it's difficult to generate enough revenue on the number of clients to to justify a, a billion and a half dollar valuation. And I've written, let's say, I'll only go back here. So... Uh, the most prescient was, uh, of course, Michael Kitsis. I found an article in 2012, July 2012, from Michael, Why Robo-Advisors Will Be No Threat to Real Advisors. So clearly he was way ahead of the curve there. The scope of most robo-advisors is so narrowly focused on delivering passive, strategic, low-cost index portfolios that arguably their greatest competition is not from comprehensive financial planners, but instead from do-it-yourself alternatives like Vanguard and Schwab. They're essentially focused on the construction of an asset-allocated portfolio based on the investor's time horizon. By contrast, advisors are increasingly focused on a wider range of comprehensive financial planning services. So on point there, and especially considering where these firms are going, where Wealthfront is going more towards self-directed. Now they see that most of their existing clients lean more towards self-directed. They see the benefits uh, of, being, of offering self-directed tools. Look at the explosion in, uh, of users at, uh, at uh, Robinhood. So they want a piece of that. So now they're going more self-directed. So things are, are coming full circle. I think also Wealthfront is a bit jealous of firms like Acorns, and they would love to have their valuation. I think Acorns was going to raise money with a SPAC this came out in May, 2021. Uh, they announced they were going public with a SPAC deal, $2 billion SPAC deal. It hasn't happened yet. So I'm not sure if that's just delayed or if it's, if it's uh, shelved, we don't know, but at least their announced uh, valuation was 2.2 billion. And people say, well, how could that be? Acorns has very has a, a much smaller revenue base or other asset base with, um, you look at Wealthfront there at 28 billion, Acorns, 5.5 billion. There's, there's a huge disparity there. But what I point out, and I've written some articles about Acorns, is the, it's not as much the assets, it's the number of accounts and the number of clients. Wealthfront has 440,000 accounts. And you assume most of those are, that's a pretty close one to a relationship to the number of clients. Acorns is over 4 million. It's 10x. So which firm is more likely to monetize that user base? to become a multi-billion dollar value company. I'd say Acorns. Wealthfront is just a really large RIA and RIAs have a very strict uh, valuation methodology, whereas Acorns with 4 million accounts is looking more like a fintech valuation. So I think uh, Wealthfront might be a little bit jealous of that and looking to try to capture some of those clients if they can. Uh, you know, they've expanded into banking, and, and uh, they want to be. I, I know I heard a, a good a good in, uh, interview with uh, Andy Ratcliffe talking about how they want to you know, be the power of money and you know, be able to automate money movement for clients, which is all which is all great. It's just difficult to do and difficult to get enough traction uh, and get enough uh, enough uh, interest from your clients to actually start to consolidate all their finances in one place. Uh, there's also been a number of unforced errors. At Wealthfront, that they made some missteps in 2018. They had a big problem with tax reporting. I mean, their entire business model is around automation efficiency. If they can't even uh, get the tax forms out right, that's a big problem. Uh, the SEC charged them in 2018 with uh, failing to with false disclosures, and then in 2020, um, they had some problems around their uh, risk parity fund, that they were charging 50 basis points, which is twice the normal amount, and uh, it fell 43 percent. Uh, or during the market sell-off, which no one expected. Uh, they had to apologize for that. So they don't have the best reputation. Uh, I know I've kept a small account there at Betterment and a couple of the robo-advisors like to keep track. And you know they're getting better in terms of their interface and their, their fee, their functionality. But I think they're still lagging behind a bit. Will they be able to sell the company? They're, they, they've gotten rejected a number of times. One and a half billion just seems too much considering they're uh, uh, they're just an RIA. Their technology hasn't shown itself to be especially great. And a lot of firms are building themselves or moving in other directions. So not likely that they'll, they'll get that full amount, but I'm sure they'll get something for their company. Moving right along in our January review of the news, there's been a surge in deals in the reg tech space for wealth management. How hot is this market? We've seen, let's see, I've got a list of four deals, all for reg tech compliance companies in just the past few months. First, RIA in a box acquired by ComplySci. Then Orion Advisor acquired Basis Code. Market Council and Dynasty Financial made an investment in Smart RIA. And finally, DocuPace acquired Giacomo uh, Compliance and Advisor Comp and Data Vendor. So what is behind all of these deals, you know, at Ezra Group, uh, our consulting firm, we've always seen uh, compliance and, and regulations as being a driver of part of tech spend, but it seems as though it's going up across the board uh, with a lot more firms of different sizes. You know, We've seen uh, a couple of different areas of, uh, of driving. In part, it's uh, SEC enforcement actions that have driven some people, uh, a need to improve efficiency and keep labor costs down, especially as we've gone remote and, and hybrid models where uh, some things, sometimes people aren't as efficient when they were in the office as they are spread out, especially compliance teams and they need more tools uh, in order to manage the disparate uh, the companies as they're growing, especially RIAs that are buying up other firms or broker dealers that are expanding. And enterprise firms are usually looking to reduce the number of vendors they deal with. So if a compliance firm can offer multiple uh, compliance tools they can build out a suite that offers uh, less for fewer contracts for the firms to deal with. So we're seeing these RegTech vendors across these different acquisitions looking to build out a full suite of compliance tools, including things like monitoring employee activity, trade surveillance, RegBI, document collection and archiving, tracking registrations, prepping for audits, and cybersecurity. So lots of these acquisitions and prior acquisitions were done to, to build out this suite. RIA in a box acquired by Complici. Complici uh, is, off, is mainly known in the institutional hedge fund space. They've, the, they're really focused around monitoring, managing, reporting conflicts of interest, employee, acti- employee activities, personal trading and things. So bringing in RIA in a box gives them a, a foothold in the wealth management space, uh, in the RIA space, because RIA in a box is one of the leaders. I think they have uh, 300 employees and 2,500 customer firms. It's a lot of clients. Uh, it makes ComplySci, uh one of the top vendors now. So they're looking to, to keep growing that. They just got $120 million equity investment over ComplySci. So they've got some, some money to spend and they're looking to build and, and grow uh, their revenue and market share. Orion Advisor has always had some good compliance software. We've we, I know clients... Uh, Uh, high net worth RIAs and other RIAs and and broker dealers that just bring in Orion just for their compliance tools. Uh, They don't even use the other parts of it. So their compliance is solid. So adding basis code, which includes uh, testing and risk assessment for advisors, scanning for insider trading, staff certifications and other audit types of tools will only help them. And if they can integrate it into that really nice dashboard that Orion came out with, I think, last year, no, the year before, 2020, they came out with their their advisor dashboard, which I really liked, and putting a compliance section on there. Um, you know, we always hear the uh, some of these buzzwords like a single pane of glass, uh, but it's true. If you can have everything in in place, uh, that increases efficiency. If Orion can integrate basis code into their existing dashboard, you get a single user experience. So the compl- the chief compliance officer doesn't need to bounce around to separate programs for all of those different tasks that their one suite of services can provide. Market Council, Dynasty makes an investment in Smart RIA. So we know Dynasty Financials are now using Smart RIA uh, in their own platform. We know the Market Council does a lot of work with compliance management. They're, they're uh, a major compliance provider for RIAs as well as um, pre-deal compliance. So a lot of firms that are looking to Buy or sell we will go to market council to do some due diligence on the compliance issues. So, having this software, you know, I had a conversation with uh, Brian. He was talking about all the work they were doing and how excited he was to buy this deal because it's really going to automate uh, a lot of the things that they were doing manually before. And he had a vision and he worked with Smart RA and they helped build out some tools that helped his firm become more efficient and make it easier for them to deliver these compliance services to their customers. Great article if you want to read some more, uh, Deals Signal a Hot Market for Compliance Tech by my friend Ryan Neal over at financialplanning.com. As the regulatory and risk risk landscape continues to evolve, RIAs find themselves allocating outsized internal resources to protect the firm and maintain their regulatory compliance programs, said Market Council President and CEO, Brian Hamburger. Compliance hasn't traditionally been a major focus for advisors' technology budgets, just over 40% of advisors say they've adopted compliance software according to Financial Planning's 2021 tech survey. Only a quarter of advisors said they plan to spend on upgrading their current compliance solutions. Well, that's gonna change. Uh, they're, they're really gonna need more. Uh, there's just too much coming to the pike. SEC is getting, is just getting a little bit too aggressive when it comes to, to fines around technology and compliance. Uh, finally, DocuPace acquires Giacomo. Giacomo's flew under the radar, they were a small company, but they've got some robust compliance solutions. Uh, trade account surveillance, trade and account surveillance, letter generation, books and records, suitability, KYC, trade and account level license checking, automated OFAC. So some of those are more broker dealer uh, focus, but it just shows that there are firms that are looking to expand into compliance. They see that as a need. DocuPace uh, is a really strong back office provider, uh, especially in the broker dealer space and they're, they're growing well in the RIA sector as well, new account opening. And uh, I look, I call them an orchestration layer. They're more than just document storage. So they saw, they've acquired Giacomo and Precise FP. So they're really looking to um, have more data available and be able to capture more data from advisory firms, be able to do analytics on it, be able to, to do reporting on it. Uh, this is a, a clear trend we're seeing. So we are expecting more. Uh, there aren't that many more uh, compliance vendors out there, but uh, if you look at the Keats' Advice tech map, which I partner with Michael on, you can see there's a, there's a uh, it's a small little box in the middle compliance. There's only two, four, six, seven companies in the RA compliance space. If you add in the social media archiving, which is another seven firms and managed service providers like Itegria, which I think was purchased, uh, who purchased them? Um, RA in a box, purchased Itegria, managed service provider for cybersecurity. That's another area uh, that compliance firms are looking to expand into uh, being able to offer cybersecurity training, simulation platforms um, com- uh, and val- validation, uh, endpoint validations. I know Ategri does that, You're checking every uh, advisors and, and staff person's computers to make sure that they are in compliance with uh, cybersecurity processes and procedures. So that's another area where they're growing. So as we see firms on the FinTech map, uh, the tech map uh, get, get consolidated. And acquired. Excuse me. Um, more pop up, because there's always going to be a need. Uh, everyone's going to come out with an idea. Hey, why aren't we doing this way? Why aren't we doing that way? Uh, as firms grow larger, they become a little bit less innovative. So we see new firms start up with new ideas on how to do things, and you know, building on new technology, they can get it done quicker. So expecting to see more uh, compliance firms pop up with different ways of doing things. And, and more options for advisors around compliance. Okay, now we're up to my favorite part of the news. It's the crypto news. We're gonna talk about how the SEC is still pushing back hard on Bitcoin spot ETF approvals. But first, a little celebration of for Bitcoin itself. The, uh, this is a tweet from John Street Capital. Uh, the Bitcoin Genesis block was mined 13 years ago. So what that means is the very first block was created that stored data on the Bitcoin blockchain 13 years ago on January 3rd. Uh, so he posted a couple stats about how Bitcoin has uh, grown since then. So it's an asset that went from zero to over a trillion dollars with no direct funding, marketing or dedicated team. We've seen over 700 million transactions with $8 trillion of volume There's tens of millions of people holding uh, Bitcoin in their electronic wallets. There's been $38 billion of revenue distributed to the miners and validators on the network. And it's a a multi-trillion dollar asset class that was created basically out of thin air. So he's uh, thanking the unknown founder, uh, the unknown developer of the the Bitcoin white paper, Satoshi Nakamoto, in his tweet. Another tweet from uh, Travis Kling, who's a, former long-short equities portfolio manager who now runs a crypto investment fund called Ikagai, or Ikagi, if I pronounced it properly, Ikagi, I-K-A-G-A-I, Asset Management. He posted this tweet last March. So Bitcoin is worth a trillion dollars, yet it has never spent a dollar on marketing, never had a CEO or a board meeting, never had a budget, never hired a lobbyist, lawyer, or auditor, never entered into a partnership, and never even existed in physical form. So what are some milestones in the past year um, to celebrate Bitcoin's 13 year uh, anniversary? Uh, It surpassed a trillion dollars in market share. Morgan Stanley started offering wealthy clients access to Bitcoin funds in their accounts. The nation of El Salvador adopted Bitcoin as legal tender. The first US futures based Bitcoin ETF launched. Now it's not the same as a spot ETF, which we'll talk about in a second. The price of Bitcoin hit an all-time high of $69,000. But more importantly to me, Bitcoin's hash rate hit an all-time high, which the hash rate is a key metric when assessing the, the, the strength of the network that, that validates and then runs Bitcoin. It represents the total com- computing power used by the miners and validators to mint new Bitcoins, but a, a higher hash rate means the network is stronger, more secure, and resistant to attacks. Uh, Last April, I posted an article on my blog called "Why Bitcoin Has Reached a Tipping Point with Advisors." It was a uh, summary of a webinar with Sunaina Tuteja, who is uh, formerly the Chief Innovation Officer at TD Ameritrade, but who is now the Chief Innovation Officer at the Federal Reserve. And uh, her uh, partner on that webinar was Rick Edelman, founder of Edelman Financial Engines and the RIA Digital Asset Council. And for many years, Rick has recommended advisors include a 1% allocation to Bitcoin in their portfolios. He also posted an article, which you can find online, uh, that Bitcoin is the first really new asset class in 150 years, that was in June. And he also posted uh, his thoughts, uh, rather his uh, predictions for the digital uh, asset market in 2022. So how can advisors and their clients invest in Bitcoin? Well, for the time being, in the US, it will not be through a spot Bitcoin ETF, because the SEC just shot down two spot Bitcoin ETFs that came out in investment news on December 23rd. There were two proposals. Uh, they, they rejected them both. They believe they don't have enough, that Bitcoin doesn't have enough investor protections in the market. So um, so the difference between, some people are asking, what's the difference between the, the spot ETF? and the futures ETF. And the biggest difference is in the framework that they have different regulatory pathworks, you know, securities, uh, whether um, physical ETFs are ruled by the 1933 Securities Act, which requires different forms to be, to be filed for, uh, to verify there's no market manipulation. Whereas a futures-based ETF is rule, is uh, regulated by the 1940 Investment Company Act and doesn't require that market manipulation form. Of course, cryptocurrency spot markets are largely unregulated, where futures markets are regulated, specifically by the in the U.S. the Commodity Futures Trading Commission sets those rules. Uh, of course, the CME, uh, uh, the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, where a lot of the futures are traded, or are cash settled and designed to track uh, a reference rate. So it's not exactly the same price as Bitcoin. In fact, there's a, a fair amount of difference between that, as well as all the fees that go along with a futures contract and costs that I won't get into. Things like Contango when the price of the future, the futures price of a commodity becomes higher than the anticipated spot price. That hits uh, investors with additional costs, uh, the price tracking issues. So overall, we're seeing um, a lot of issues here around uh, these Bitcoin ETFs not being approved. And uh, there was a, uh, NIDIG is another company they're one of the biggest uh, providers of institutional Bitcoin uh, support. Their ETF proposal for a spot wasn't rejected, but it was delayed. So they delayed it by, I think, 60 days. So I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. It's better than being rejected, I guess. But they now they have until March 15th to make a decision. Uh, so it doesn't look good. Uh, I think they're just trying to you know kick the can down the road. Uh, you know, I'm on the uh, side of we need a spot ETF, uh, spot Bitcoin ETF is better for consumers uh, to be able to invest in that uh, with lower costs, lower fees, uh, and not have to get involved with their own digital wallets and 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 buying it that way. Uh, so I think it'll be good for the market when they eventually do that. And I'm a big supporter, but it remains to be seen when the SEC will come around and approve a spot Bitcoin ETF. And until the SEC approves a spot Bitcoin ETF, one great way for advisors to invest their clients' assets in digital currencies is through a separately managed account with uh, a, a digital asset manager. Uh, advisors uh, and broker deals can do this by contacting Bitria. That's B I T R I A I O or Bitria I O, formerly blockchain I O. And they offer a uh, tools and technology that connects advisory firms and broker-dealers with some of the best digital asset managers in the industry. They offer the rebalancing, the connection, the trading, uh, the custody through through Gemini. So they've got a one-stop shop that allows advisors to safely and securely uh, invest clients' assets in digital models, really. So you're, you're, building, you're building model portfolios with some of the best digital asset managers in the industry. Uh, it plugs right into your existing systems. And, and, uh, and, and tools, compliance tools, reporting tools. So it's a great way for, uh, for wealth management firms to get access and exposure to digital currencies in a, um, a safe and secure manner. That's bitria.io, bit, so check them out. That's a wrap for our January news. Hope you enjoyed it. Please remember to share our podcast on all your social media channels. Tell everyone how much you like it. Give us a five-star review on iTunes. And also, please go to our website, EzraGroupLLC.com, scroll to the bottom of the page, and sign up for our newsletter. Every month, you'll receive one email chock full of wealth management industry goodness, news, articles, links, information that you will find very interesting. You will not be disappointed. All right, talk to everyone again next time.